This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. And I'm like, oh man, they ate all the breakfast. So, so then, but then I go by the women's section to see maybe in the women's part of the shiva there's breakfast. You know, I ain't no dummy. Except they, they women ate all the breakfast. But lo and behold, my wife's there. And, and my wife just looks at me and she's like, comes out of the shiva and she says, come home with me. So I, we go around to our door and I go in the house and there's a big whole wheat roll with mustard and mayo and a bed of lettuce and a big omelet inside. And, and she didn't give me the shiva food, which actually probably looked even nicer, but she gave me this delicious, amazing sandwich. And, um, but meanwhile, I'm not even around. It's not a, there's no relationship happening, but boy, is there a lot of relationship happening because, because her love for me leads to doing that is, that is, you know, a pleasure. So we're being asked to do so much. In Judaism, you're asked so much to do for God. You know, you're really being asked to do a lot and also to not do a lot. And meaning avoiding, like, can you imagine going to a ball game and not being able to eat a hot dog? because it's not kosher, you know, like, you better love God a lot, you know, to be able to sacrifice, and that's what life's about, life's about sacrificing for things that are meaningful, well, what's more meaningful than love? Yeah, maybe I'll talk a little bit about this today, okay, go ahead, you can hit it. Oh, it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) You just can't stop pressing live feed. I had no idea I was live. Hi, everyone. Rabbi Glazer here. Uh, welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia, Torah in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Western Wall, which is right behind me here. And I just blocked the light out a little. And someone created a jet or a rocket. Anyway, so, I mean, let's put it like this. Love is, is the most important thing in your life period. That's it. Love is the most important thing in your life, period. You know, like, for example, after the war, there was, um, you know, after World War II, after the Holocaust, orphanages filled with children who came out. You know, either their parents were killed in the war, Jews and Gentiles, meaning it was just like, it's post-World War. You know, the orphanage is packed with kids after the war. And, and the... Um, but they noticed that, the, that there were children in the, in the orphanages that were dying. And they couldn't figure out why until they finally realized that it was the quieter ones that were dying. And while the loud crybaby ones were, were not dying. And they finally realized that it's the quieter ones that are not being held. And so, well, let's do an experiment. Why don't we hold the quieter ones and see what happens? And they held the quiet babies and the quiet toddlers and the quiet little kids and stuff and they picked them up and held them and and they got better and they were they the kid the orphans stopped dying and and there was everything was there they had shelter they had blankets they had food they had water they had clothing they had everything but but the one thing that was missing from those quieter ones was was loving connection loving closeness loving support and so what they realized at that point that more important than food, water, shelter, clothing is love. Now, all of you people, you know, you're all, you're all so damaged, no offense, 
but every person's heart breaks a thousand times by the time they're five years old. I mean, I, I broke my own kids' hearts, you know, like I'm a father. I broke my kids' hearts so many times. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget a phone call I got when I was, I was here in the old seat. I'm running from class to class. It was during like the heyday of outreach. So you're just like, boom, boom, boom. You're this, this group, that group, this group, that group. And I'm running around in group to group. Between two groups, I get a phone call. And I noticed my phone had rang, rung several times from a number that I didn't know. And I finally pick up the phone. And it's someone on the other line says, says, hi, Rebyomtov. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm translating from Hebrew. And he's, it was a Pins Karlino Chosid from my shul. And he says, yeah, I found your son, you know, your six-year-old, standing in front of the school crying. He must have been there for about an hour. And I said, yeah. And he's like, he said you were supposed to pick him up. And at that point, I was just like, oh, I forgot there are no buses today. And my wife had told me the night before that I needed to pick him up. But I just came right into Asia in the morning and just went through the schedule. I had a break to do that. It was during lunch. But, you know, someone needed to talk to me and that happened, this happened, that happened. And he managed to, like, read my son's name on his little, you know, the little kids wear their little bag over there, you know, those cute little, it's called in Yiddish, a teshele. He read the teshele and saw my name on there, and our home phone where no one answered either, because my wife would have come. And, uh, and so, I mean, just imagine being that boy, and what kind of thoughts go through your head, watching each boy get picked up. You know, and probably promising a few adults that his father's coming when they saw him out there. And, uh, but, you know, and even then I had to go into another class. So I asked the guy, I'm like, can you keep an eye on him for another hour? You know, and, and, but this happened to all of us. This happened to all of us in ways we, we don't remember these things. But one thing's for sure, that when it happened, your heart broke. And when the heart breaks, you can't help but say the following words. I will never love again. That's what happens when the heart breaks. You say, I will never love again. And it doesn't matter how old you are. And it doesn't matter how intellectual you are. You just will never. And when I say I'll never love again, it's not that I'll never love. But I will never love till there. I'll never let someone dare again. That depth, unavailable. And if you think about your life, even all of you in this room as adults, even married people, you'll notice that even your own spouse never got in to this, those spots. And it's not that you wouldn't want them there. It's not that you wouldn't invite them there. In fact, you are inviting them. It's just that you don't have the GPS system good enough to get into those spots, to those closed doors in there. And it's particularly, this is particularly exacerbated in our generation because well, I mean, people don't get married so young anymore, which just adds years to you're not being protected. You know that, you know that a son-in-law in Yiddish is called Adim. And the word Adim means, in Hebrew, it means, it means uh, testimony. Edut is testimony. So a son-in-law is called testimony. So if someone sees one of my son-in-laws, he'll say, I saw your Adim. I saw your testimony. What's he testimony? He's testimony that I took care of my daughter. That I didn't leave her for the wolves. That she didn't go have to like figure out how to get herself married off by practicing around. She, she was married off. 
you know, she was 17 years old. We got a phone call saying, you know, we have someone for your daughter. And we were like, she's not dating. She's only 17. Goodbye. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. Just give us one minute. You got one minute. <laughs> and she was engaged the next day. And, and, and she turned 18 before the wedding, but she had a baby, you know, a couple months later. And, you know, she had a baby. I think she was still 18 when she had her first child. But, but you know, as protected as possible. In the old days, and still in many countries today, girls were married much younger. And they were, you know, much younger than that. I like my grandmother. She wasn't raised observant. She was raised in Los Angeles, my grandmother. You know, today she'd be a hundred and something. She passed away many years ago. But she was married off by her parents, no questions asked, secular. Married off by her parents. Her parents took care of her and married her off to an amazing man, my grandfather Sam, at 16 years old. And that was normal in a secular community. Totally normal. So your heart only has so much room to get put in the egg slicer and turned and sliced and turned and sliced and turned and sliced. So that when you marry, you're actually offering your heart to the person you're marrying minus all the heartbreaks of childhood and stuff, which are many. Which are many. There's many heartbreaks when you're a kid. You know, how many even Hasidic kids at big Shabbos tables had to like, and, and non-Hasidic, you know, Litvish kids from big families learn to keep their mouths shut at the Shabbos table. And the parents are like trying to egg them on to say a Devar Torah, and they're like, not in front of my older brothers. I learned that lesson when I was about six. You know, and ever since then, it's just, I'm not going to have my heart broken by the people I trusted. And so, and so love is our most important need. And it's also the most fragile need. You had a question or a comment? Yeah, you can't heal things partially. Right. So <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. So, so the, um, we'll talk about healing that. So love being our most important need, it's very interesting if you think about the human heart. Because I'll ask you, what's more precious, a heart or, or a precious stone that's worth $10,000. Which one? The diamond or the heart? The heart's way more precious. Which one's more fragile? The heart or the stone? The The stone we keep in a safe. The heart has this insane desire to be held by somebody forever. We're born to have it held. And the first people we were born into knowing, which was our parents and our siblings, were the ones we thought would hold it best. And sadly, so many parents have such pressure. You know, this pressure of keeping up with the Joneses if you're secular, or keeping up with the Schwartzes if you're observant. And, and, and the kids sense that the parents' concern about how they come off to others is more important than the kid themselves. Like the, kid, the parents can't help but be more concerned about the family name more than the family. And that's heartbreaking for a child. It's heartbreaking. This is why uh, when people call me from Brooklyn and say that they got a kid who's, you know, not in yeshiva anymore, you know, he's not, 
not really keeping up with uh, his side of the Jewish bargain of daily Jewish life, that many of those kids today are back on the path of Torah today. And I never met the kid. I only worked with the parents. Never met the kid. But, but got the parents to, to look inside and recognize what kind of, what kind of um, inner intimate love trust was breached in their over-concern for how they look coming into shul with or without their sons. It's very painful for a father to not have his sons in shul with him. And so, but the, but the sons start to realize he doesn't even care what I do in shul. He cares that I make him look good in shul by being there with him. Now, there is a deeper pride to pray with your sons, right? The family that prays together stays together. So, on the one hand, it's, there's a deep, deep pride in praying with your children in the synagogue together. There's something very beautiful. I don't mean pride like haughty pride. I'm talking about just like tradition. You know, like this is, this is getting passed down and here we are together. Like the, the grandfather's sitting there. The, the sons are all around and the boys are, you know, in there too. And everyone's praying together. And, and it's like something's working here. But it's easy, it's easy to cross the border of, it's not that part, but it's rather, I, I'm embarrassed if they're not there. And the second the sons sense the embarrassment of the father, their desire to not be there gets really strong. The second the father has this sense, like he so badly wants his sons on board, because of the embarrassment of the sons not being on board, the sons can't help but not be on board. And then when the sons aren't on board, the parents get into this horrible situation that we learned from Rebecca, Rivka, our foremother, who said the words when she realized she was pregnant with a schizo baby, okay, because she, you know, she had some schizo baby inside. Do, do we have an extra cup around here? Oh, thank you. Is that what you were pointing at? Oh, my. Who was drinking in this? Are you just offering me someone's cup? Okay. You have a clean cup? Yeah. Amazing. I understand. I'll just keep refilling it. So Rivka has a skits, as far as she's concerned, a schizo baby, because she doesn't know she's got twins. That They're not schizo. One's a tzaddik and one's a Russia. One's a holy and one's you know, evil guy. She didn't know that. All she knew is something's really wrong in there. And she said the words, Lama ze anoichi, which can be translated as, what am I living for? Because if you see your kids aren't on the path, you can't help but ask what you're living for. Right? Because like, here you are like, toiling away at your Jewish life, sacrificing. You know, life risk births. You know, the, the incredible sacrifice of raising those kids. And if they're not on the path in the end, you know, okay, that's nice you had babies, but we're having babies because, because we're keeping a tradition going here. We are, we are, you know, as I like to call us, we are a solution to the earth's problems. And, and uh, we are, we're here to rectify the planet. 
you know, I, my background is, uh, you know, I was a, uh, I kind of looked like this guy when I got here. And uh, my fellow surfer from the southern bay of Los Angeles, I was from the northern bay. And um, he, uh, it's so funny how connected I feel to you, by the way. <laughs> and I'm sure you sense from my accent that, like, something doesn't mix between my look and that I would sound just like you if we were hanging out. So, anyway, the, um, but I was also, like, part of uh, environmentalist programming and, like, you know, protecting the earth and stuff. But I, I was also part of a radical environmentalist group that's, you know, no one would ever admit they're part of actively, but because it's already been close to 30 years since I've done anything active there. It was called uh, Earth First, which is a radical environmentalist organization where they're involved in all kinds of illegal activity. And, uh, you know, they're, they're basically environmental terrorists <laughs> who, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely caused damage in my life to... Uh, Machinery and stuff that was going to mess with. A vigilante, not a terrorist. A vigilante. Yeah. But I was young and dumb at the time, and uh, although I don't have much regret. And what's interesting for me every time I visit Los Angeles is driving up the 405 and looking up at the hills after Sunset Boulevard is to see the J. Paul Getty Museum up there and know that, that how many tractors were destroyed before they could finally build up there. And it, and it was way after I'd left L.A. But, the, um, but it, there was no building up there. It cost way too much to build up there on our, tra- on our trails. And they tried many times, and every time we <laughs> prevented it. But the, uh, we were kids. We were kids. But, but no tractor could survive us. And, and the... Um, uh, but in the end, it's the J. Paul Getty Museum, you know, which was built. You know, I, I was already in Israel when the J. Paul Getty Museum was built. Um, anyway, but as part of these radical environmentalists, and and when when I visited L.A. once, I had my kids with me, and thank God, eight kids. You know, it's pretty impressive. You know, it's like ducklings, one after the other after the other. And and so when I got there, several of my radical environmentalist friends were at this party that I came to, and I came in with my wife, and then here come the ducklings. And so one of them says, one of them says to me, Glazer, like, you knew more than all of us about, you know, about the companies and the overpopulation and the, you know, lack of, you know, lack of resources and, you know, having a small carbon footprint and, you know, like, you were the last person we thought would even get married from, you know, just my, my, my stand. For the environment, you know, I was that level of like irresponsible to even have children. That's the kind of millennial I was, and um, and the anyway. So I said to him, "Now, amazing timing. We were sitting on the bluffs on the Pacific Palisades bluffs, where everyone smokes up, and and just as they're telling me this, just as they're telling me this, someone had unwrapped a wrapper on something and it went flying by us." And all eight of my kids went chasing after that wrapper for about 200 yards. And, came, and it went into the bushes, and they, then they're gone for a while. And then they came back with the wrapper to show it to me, you know, these little kids. You know. and, and my friends were like, whoa. And, and I'm like, listen, when you're creating more of a problem for our planet, I understand. But when you're creating the solution, so you should have as many kids as possible. 
And one Hasidic man walked into an old folks home in Brooklyn. And there was a Holocaust survivor, a secular lady sitting there, and, you know, in the lobby. And she sees one kid after the other, after the other, after the other coming in, 12 kids. And she asked this guy, how many? And he looks back and he says, until six million. And so the, so, yeah, we are, we are the solution for this earth and we should have as many kids as possible, each one of us, which means you have to get super stable and strong to be able to do that. Because, you know, family planning for a Jew isn't what fits in a five-seater, okay? It's not like, yeah, we'll, we'll have three kids so we don't have to drive one of those ridiculous Honda Odyssey, you know, like, last thing I want is a minivan, you know. They, but literally, it almost seems like people plan their families based on, based on a sedan, you know. And that's not our values. But cutting all the way back is that when parents see that their kids aren't keeping those values, the parents can't help but ask themselves, Lama ze What am I living for? Now, some parents will just kick, shoot themselves in the foot for the rest of their lives about, you know, oh, that darn kid's ruining my life, you know, and what an embarrassment. And then, of course, there's the ones, I get calls also where the, where the parents are like, you know, the kid's stuck now because they finally realized that America, with all its acceptance, turned out to be, you know, like, it looked good. It looked like candy to my children growing up in a non-acceptance home because those homes aren't good at acceptance when they're, you know, when they're more interested in how they look than how the kids are doing. They're not winning any acceptance awards. So the kid looks at America and thinks, ah, oh, America, everyone's accepted. You could be a boy, you could be a girl, you could be a girl, you could be a boy, you can even change it on day to day. You're okay, whatever you are. You know, and, that, and that's you know, just one example of, you know, the most extreme example of like acceptance. And, but it doesn't take long to realize that it's actually mean streets out there because you know, it may look accepting from like, you know, a, a distance. But in the end, it's really your mother and father are the ones who are going to remortgage their house, you know, refinance their house or sell it if you had a medical or legal issue. Or, you know, the, in the end, they're the ones who love you and are losing sleep over you. They're the ones who care. And so what happens, the kid wants to come back. And then I get a call in Jerusalem saying, this kid wants back. And I'm like, yeah, okay, great, he's back. And they're like, or she's back. And they're like, no, it's not good for the rest of the kids. Like, we can't have this kid poisoning the rest of the kids. At which point I tell him, those kids are already poisoned. You poisoned these kids. This was the one kid who went to get some help. Maybe find some, some safe space in his life. Or her life. And so your house is already upside down. Your job is to bring the kid back and show your kids that this home doesn't have an eject button. This home doesn't eject you. This home is where you're accepted no matter what. But here's the main point that I want to say. is When you ask the question, what am I living for? You're supposed to answer the question. You're supposed to actually answer it. What am I living for? Well, till now, I've been living for how we come off for others. But from now on, forget others. Forget even the kids. This is my life. You're born alone. You die alone. Your eternity is being built every single day. Stop living for your kids. Stop living for your neighbors' opinions and your community's opinions. Start living 
for the soul that God put in you and get busy with your commandments. And it turns out that our Kabbalistic tradition, the Zohar, you know, the Kabbalah, backs up this point by telling us what? The only Olam Haba you get, the only eternity you get in your life, all of you sitting right here, the only thing you're going to get when you die will be whatever you did in this life, what is called in Hebrew, Nishma. The only thing you get in this life is whatever you did from a real, genuine, authentic, truthful place. If you did it for ulterior motives, if there was some agenda behind it, for example, giving tzedakah to get your name high up on a plaque or something. Did I just say that? Bad thing to say. No, no, really, because there's two things that no matter why you do it, it's still, you still uh, reap its rewards. And it's really one thing, but tzedakah gets added to it. The thing is called chesed. Chesed. Anything you do as an act of kindness, even if you did it for all the wrong reasons, it still goes. And the reason it goes, there's several reasons why it goes, but the main reason it goes is because the whole substrate of all of creation is made of chesed, is made of kindness. Because it's called olam chesed yibaneh. God created the whole world out of chesed. So if you wind up doing something for somebody, let's say there's some dude, you do something for him, and you're thinking to yourself, what's your name again? Yuda. Yuda, you do something for some guy, and you're thinking, I think this guy's got a future. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help build that guy, because you know, who knows what I'll get later for that. You know? and, and the, you know, meaning all the wrong reasons. You're, you're, it counts. It counts in this world, and it counts in the next. Because you're, you're part of the substrate of creation, which is kindness to others. Tzedakah hits the same thing. So I, I gave a bad example of getting a plaque, because if you give tzedakah, it does, it does the trick. So the, uh, anyway, but stuff we do, lolishma. let's say, for example, Torah study. Torah study. Like there's certain people in this room have spent many years studying Torah. Yeah, anyone in this room spent many years studying Torah? Uh, okay. Maybe these two guys in the back spent many years studying Torah. So it turns out, it turns out that all the Torah you study for the wrong reason stays in this world. So you could like, you could like die after years of study, like having finished the whole Talmud multiple times, and you die, and you're expecting like there's going to be some kind of parade for you in the next world, and you're like coming out ready to march with the band and stuff. And you get into a giant hall, so to speak, and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And none of your Torah came with you. Why? Because whatever, there's all being the best learner or being the guy who learned the most or, you know, you had all the wrong agendas going on during the learning time. One sec, but there's really good news that I'm going to tell you before you raise your hand because maybe you'll like the good news. The good news is that if you ever realize that you had been learning for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. and you decide you're going to learn for the right reasons, mm-hmm. it turns out all the Torah study you ever learned is waiting in a little storehouse. It's like putting a safe. Mm-hmm. And the combo on the safe to release it is to have done tshuva for the wrong reasons, meaning have repented for learning for the wrong reasons, and then to, you have to review it. You have to review all the Torah you ever learned just read through it. You just got to review it. 
So read through the Torah you ever learned, and it releases all the Torah you've ever learned. And so it's really important that when someone discovers that they've been learning for the wrong reasons, to go back and review for the right reasons. Yeah? Children, that's very good for. Yeah. Yeah. I'll translate that for everybody. That I'll speak about that for a minute. First, let me translate the first part. That uh, that if you do something for the wrong reasons you can come to do it for the right reasons. The, the Balatanya, a great Kabbalist who lived, the Balatanya who lived hundreds of years ago, who was a great Kabbalist, said that, um, that it only works, though, if you do something for the wrong reasons, in order to come to do the right reasons, you have to at least know you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Because if you don't realize that, you're, you're, then it just stays. Yes, because they tell you to find things, find things on this earth to help you Right. So our kids, for example, your kids, my kids, your kids, we know that it's probably a good idea. Like this morning when my son was getting ready to leave in a rainstorm, you know, he was not looking happy about going out there today. And he's a little nine-year-old boy, and he's going to go learn all day, you know, in Yiddish, in Meisharim, and, and he just was not looking so happy. So, so right before he left the door, I said to my wife, as if I didn't even notice he was there, I said, you know, at the end of this week, Friday, it's probably a good idea I take all the kids to do something fun. And, you know, he, believe me, he was listening. <laughs> he was listening to that, and, and he left the house. Turned out he crashed his bike on the way in, and he was back 20 minutes later looking extra unhappy. Now, if you're wondering why my, bike, my son leaves on his bike in a rainstorm, you know, it's because he's my son. I also showed up here in a bike in a rainstorm. So, anyway, the, I'm just trying to figure out how the Pince Carliner's Rebbe, his Rebbe, has figured out that him riding a bike is the best idea when he's the only kid, I think, in the history of like 200 years of Pince Carlina ever riding a bike to the Cheder. But I like this Rebbe. <laughs> anyway, um, so you've got to know you're doing things for the right reason if it's going to lead to it. And I think our kids know because they see us fathers learning, and no one's given us a candy. You know, we're learning. They see there's a reason to learn. That's the right reason to learn. And, but they're accepting the prize. They're accepting the prizes that we give them as kids. And they will come to the maturity of studying. Even as young adults, sometimes we're doing, we do, we're doing it partially. We want to do it with Ma. But there are times that, you know, even at, at, at an older stage, sometimes people are thinking in terms of who's going to notice and who's going to... Yeah, and sure. It doesn't mean there are no, no lishma. It's, yeah, it's there's partially lishma. It's, yeah. it's not black and white. And it's yeah, and since you're on that, there's also what's lishma for actually... Me and this gentleman in the back, we're about the same age. Um, for what's lishma for us today, 10 years from now, we might laugh at. You understand? So, meaning you, Lishma, by the way, just in case, I translated before, but I'll say it again. It's doing things for the real true reason. Like why you should really do something, as opposed to doing it for ulterior motives. So, but the thing is, as you mature, you start to realize, wow, even what I thought was the right reasons, now I'm discovering there's a whole new level of that. And there even was a part of my ego involved in what I thought, when I thought I had no ego, was actually there was an aspect of my ego I didn't even know was there 
that was involved. Now I've broken through that one, and now I better go review my Torah, which is a good reason that we should keep reviewing. We should review our Torah as much as possible and keep sending it up for, for that. Now, um, j- ladies and gentlemen, this is the crazy thing, is that we got five minutes left and we're here to talk about love. It was just about love today. <laughs> so our hearts broke many times. And the most precious thing we got is our hearts. You know, they've been sliced and diced. And, and we've got... When we marry and have children, but especially when we marry, we, we want to offer them as much of a whole heart as possible. And that's one of the reasons why, why it's so important not to give your heart to someone until you're wearing an insurance, for ladies, until you're wearing an insurance policy on your ring, fing, your ring finger. You know, when you get the insurance policy, you give the heart, right? No tiki, no washi. Yeah, no ring, no ring finger, no heart. Put the ring on, give the heart. That's how. That's the order of events. That was all changed, of course, late six, late nineteen sixties, where suddenly there was no insurance policy, because I'm not going to go into graphic detail of what was invented at the end of the nineteen sixties. But suddenly, you know, people were giving up a lot without a lot of insurance, and since then, you know, it's not been so good for. It's not been good for women since then, you know. And, uh, and the, uh, anyway, but for us is we need to give that heart. So how do you give your heart if you're missing part of it from crazy things that happened when you were a kid? How do you actually give up your heart to the person? So one thing is the desire to, one thing is the desire to, that, that to know that I'm, I'm not giving all my heart and I want to give all my heart. The, the next thing is to trust because what's the whole issue of giving a heart is trust why did you how did the heart break in the first place you trusted like my son trusted me and i didn't show up to pick him up from school so you trusted and trust got breached and so therefore we need to focus less on love and more on trust focus less on love and more on trust and that is to to trust implicitly your heart in people's hands. Now, some of you would say, well, that sounds dangerous. I'm just going to trust my heart in people's hands. But here's the thing. You've been going, and this is very important to get this, you've been going with a very young child's immature version of when it's okay to trust and not. There's a man, let's say you're a female, there's a man who's, who's sacrificed half the world's population Put that ring on your finger. That's a lot. He also comes home each night. That's something. He, he also, he's going out of his way for you all over the place. That's also something. See, once your trust gets breached, you wind up with a child's, version, your child's vision of your relationship. And so you make this poor guy jump through circus hoops and often making some of those jumps impossible just so you can have some weird subversive proof that you're not really loved. And those kind of games are, are, are 
you know, it means that you're not really looking with adult eyes. You're still coming from the pain of childhood. And that's what I meant by trust implicitly. Just trust fully. For men and women, trust fully. You know, give them all your trust. All your heart, all your trust. Just give it. Give it up. And I'll tell you something else. In case they do have a little... If there was something not worth trusting there, if there was something not so trustworthy there, well, I'll tell you one way to expose it. Don't trust them. Why? Because they can't help psychologically from saying, hey, I'm already doing the time. Might as well do the crime. I see I don't, she doesn't trust me. So why am I, why am I doing backflips? And so he stays at work longer, and he, this, you know, it's like, or she, you know, she's off to a career, and, and, you know, he doesn't really trust me anyway, so I might as well just go live my individual life. And, and so, so you, you, it, it's not good to not trust the person when you're trying, when deep down all you want is to be able to trust the person. And I learned many years ago that trust is the key to all of everything. And I trust everybody. I trust everybody. There's probably several people in this room who even know the code on my iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> this random guy here knows the code on my iPhone. You know, and have I ever given it to you personally? Personally? No, but you said it out loud. Yeah, I'll announce it sometimes. <laughs> and but but what that does is it gives me the ability to not have to lock my car. Because who's the person more likely to get ripped off? The person who's always trying to make sure no one wrongs him. The person who's always hoarding their possessions and locking everything. That person's basically radiating, rip me off. Like if, if a guy's checking doors to rip off a car, they'll get like a phone call when they pass my car. Like something crazy will happen that will make them forget about my car. They won't notice it. And, and I've just learned to trust, and I've also learned to love as a result of that. And it, it's worth it. I've told this many times, but in college, when I went to university, UCSB. <laughs> How old are you, by the way? 20. You were going to school now, or are you? Cal? Oh, you're Cal. <laughs> My mom went to Cal. So, so, the, um, so I was at UCSB. Sorry. <laughs> Ouch. So I was at UCSB, and uh, and the um, that's why I was surfing up by Rincon the other day. Is the uh, I can't help but gravitate up towards those Point Breaks, and the um, anyway. Every year, my roommates. I was with the same roommates all along. We're like best friends for life, and my roommates and I were. They would count up how much was stolen from me that year. Why? Because we have, you know, these crazy parties. And there's random people coming in there, you know, drinking our keg beer until the kegs run out. You're like the most popular person until your keg runs out, by the way. I'll never forget those parties, you know, like, you know, because I would have six kegs. It was a deal I made with my father that he, if I go to a university, that he has to deliver six kegs. Not he, but he has to send six kegs of beer, the big kegs. Uh, six kegs every Thursday night. And, and, but we wouldn't drink it all Thursday night. Our weekends started on Thursdays, but by Friday night they were gone. And, but I'll never forget, it was like, like clockwork. Every 
weekend, a Friday night, I would be walking with a group of really drunk people down the street looking for the next keg party and just thinking like how I was like a star literally 10 minutes ago. And when the last drop of beer came out of that keg, I was just like another guy looking for a beer and walking with a couple dozen guys for the next party. Anyway, but at the end of every year, they would, uh, do, a, they would do the math. We'd all be sitting around, and they would do the math how much stuff was stolen from me. And, you know, it was usually a couple hundred bucks at the end of the Heshbon, you know, like my wetsuit booties or, you know, my surfboard leash or, you know, or, you know, a couple of CDs or my bong or who knows what they stole. And they, they but they took off with stuff. And, and then, uh, and then uh, when they would finish with it, they'd say, okay, this year, you know, you lost like 400 bucks worth of stuff. And then I would say to them, this became a ritual year after year, I'd say to them, well, that's a savings of $400. And they're like, why? And I said, because if I could get a subscription for $800 a year, that I get to trust everybody implicitly. It's an implied trust to every single human being that I come across. And I don't have to think about my stuff. And it only cost me 800 bucks a year. I would pay it. It'd be worth it to live in a world where you can trust because there you can love and there you're safe. And I lived my year safe and I don't know how you guys lived keeping all your stuff around, but I had a great year. And okay, I lost some stuff and they should be blessed. Whoever stole it should be blessed and use it well and get their acts together. (laughs) And you want to know something? My second year university, it was something like 350 bucks. And my next year university was like 275. The next year was like 150. And next year, you're asking why I was there so many years. Well, (laughs) when you take two classes a semester, because you're allowed to take one third of your classes pass, no pass. So I would take two. you You had to take three. So I would take two that were multiple guests. I know you call it multiple choice, but I called it multiple guests. And the, and if you're Jewish, like you can get a C on any multiple guest exam. So and they, and then I took the other class, no pass, and I passed many of those anyway, because I found out it was a multiple guest exam, and I went in there and actually took the exam and passed. But the, uh, but the uh, anyway, eventually. The last year of university, I don't remember how much I lost. It was, I think, a little over $100 worth of stuff. And it's just like, it's just gone away altogether. And, and so we got to love and we got to trust. And we got to trust and we got to love. And that's such a better way to live. And you, gotta, you have to break through your crazy addiction to making people jump through hoops to be close to you. You are a hassle to be close to. You understand? You're a hassle to be close to. You're a drama queen. I'm speaking to the guys, too. And in 2020, I think you're allowed to call the guys queens as well, with all their tight, tight pants and scarves and stuff. You know? But you're a drama queen, and, and you're making everyone overly prove something that, as if it's so worth it, by the way. And... and you know, because not much you give either most of the time. So, so anyway, give all your heart. And here's the thing, that when you have love, you love to do for people that you love. We love to do it. My wife doesn't think twice about the effort she puts in for those she loves. And that 
incredible continental breakfast she gave to the whole shiva at my the Rosenfeld's house next door to me this morning. I mean, you should have seen this breakfast. It was like feta cheeses and sliced vegetables. I was like, it almost makes it worth it to die. And and the such a beautiful breakfast. I promise you, she only had pleasure while she cut those vegetables. It was she had pleasure the whole entire time, and watching them eat it was its own pleasure. And and so when you love, you do. So when it comes to God. All of us have to realize that all of us have to realize that we have to be crazy in love with God. And I'll give you a simple, simple recipe to be crazy in love with God. It's just open your eyes to notice how much He's orchestrating in your life. Notice the orchestration. Just notice the orchestration. There's some being, there's some infinite being a little too interested in you. And you're just basically being stalked by the creator of the universe. I mean, you would think God has something better to do than like arrange your life. But he's arranging ant hills for ants to live on and and ant hills for ant eaters to have kiddish on and and like he's he's arranging everything all around you all the time. Open your eyes, recognize that everything's being arranged for you. There's some being that's madly in love with you, stalking you at all times. And and is way too involved in details that you just think he has something better to do than be worrying about your details. And, and there he is each time. Like He works through the world. He works through people and through things. And maybe a lack of money causes you more prayer. And, and, uh, and then you have to go meet people. And you're going to have to call somebody because you've got to get a job, which means you're now connecting to people. And he wants us connecting like that. And, and all, it's all being arranged. The good and the bad, in quotes, are all part of this crazy tapestry that God's painting. And you're a major character in that, in, that, in that film. And you can't help but love a being that's that interested in you. He way outdoes your own parents in his interest. Because your parents would protect you from stuff he won't. Your parents will protect you from stuff he won't. Because he knows where you're going to grow. And he knows it on a millimeter accuracy level. So there's stuff you're going through that you wish your parents could protect you from, and they can't even protect you from it. But he's perfectly orchestrating it to develop you and develop you. And some of that stuff's hard. Some of that stuff's crazy scary. And so we don't quite understand why God would have us grow in those ways and why we have to go through some of that crazy stuff to grow. But he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's crazy about you. And when you feel that love, then you're like, it's my pleasure, just like my wife's pleasure, it's my pleasure to do for him and to not do stupid stuff that's forbidden to a Jew, for a Jew to do. It's my pleasure not to do that. I have pleasure not eating the hot dog at the ball game. L.A. has its, you know, it's got Jeff's Glot Kosher. You know, Jeff's Glot, I forget what it's called exactly. Jeff's Gourmet, another L.A. prison. Jeff's Gourmet is on the, it's on the mezzanine level down below or something. On the, no, on the field at Dodger Stadium. Jeff's Gourmet right next to a Mike, a craft beer stand. It's like, it's like heaven. Yeah. Anyway, everyone, um, we're, we're over time now. So I, uh, if you're watching this live, please click on all the bells and whistles there, the follow, the subscribe, and share it with friends and and, uh, and join the club. It's called YomTobMediaClub.com. Go online, YomTobMediaClub.com. 
And it was a pleasure speaking to all you amazing people. Shalom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.